Radioactive Nuclear Legacy Waste. The Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant in Pike County, Ohio, made enriched uranium to support the nation's nuclear weapons program and create the fuel used by commercial nuclear reactors. It operated from 1954 until 2001. But even now, today, 20 years after the facility last produced enriched uranium, the danger of radiation contamination continues, especially with the Department of Energy's current efforts to tear down the half-mile-long buildings that house the equipment. You'd think DOE would take every precaution to protect local residents from being exposed to radioactive materials released during the demolition process. But then you learn about recent tests of the surrounding communities and hear a highly credentialed researcher tell you, Enriched uranium is something that I found basically from day one in the offsite environment. And there's lots of examples of finding it in soils, in the dusts in Zahn's Corner School, in the dusts in private individuals' residences offsite. It's present in the water draining the site. There's a creek called Little Beaver Creek, which goes into the Scioto River. We found enriched uranium in sediments of the Scioto River downstream of the facility. Well, when someone who holds a PhD in analytical chemistry and who has worked for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Enforcement, Dr. Michael Ketterer, tells you of radiological releases he's found through not only his own research, but also DOE's publicly available data, you realize that there's probably a nuclear disaster lurking no matter where you live, and that we are, each of us, stuck in that awful seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a look at the latest findings in Piketon, Ohio, where the Department of Energy is pushing through the demolition of the highly radioactive Piketon gaseous diffusion plant, much to the detriment and anger of the local community. We talk with Dr. Michael Ketterer, whose research broke the story of radioactive contaminants in the Piketon, Ohio, Zahn's Corner Middle School three years ago, and he's at it again analyzing and presenting data that shows radioactive materials have been released into the air and water of communities surrounding the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant. It's a chilling tale from a brilliant, deeply committed scientist. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information 
then anyone working on a COVID ward in Florida or Texas has the bandwidth to even consider. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, August 10, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting here in the U.S., where Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak announced on Tuesday, August 3rd, that President Joe Biden has promised to block shipping of nuclear waste to Yucca Mountain. He quoted Biden as saying, I assure you as president, there will be no storage at Yucca Mountain, period. Every Nevada governor since the first nuclear dump was first proposed has fought to prevent the federal government from moving high-level waste to the mountain 90 miles north of Las Vegas on treaty land that has never been ceded by the Western Shoshone people. Sisolak said the latest agreement with federal officials also promised to remove plutonium that was illegally shipped to Nevada by the Trump administration in 2026 and to require 30 days' notice before attempting another shipment. Governor Sisolak said, This is a monumental step forward in ensuring that the people of Nevada are protected from nuclear waste. However, that does not extend to the people of New Mexico or West Texas. In an article that jumps the gun just a wee bit that appeared in Power Engineering, a pro-nuclear publication, it states that the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission staff is recommending granting a proposed license for a planned spent nuclear fuel interim, pay attention to that word, interim storage facility in West Texas. The NRC issued its final environmental impact statement on the application by Interim Storage Partners, LLC, and if granted, the owners would construct a facility to store 5,000 in the beginning, up to 44,000 tons of high-level spent, you can put that word in quotes too because it's not spent, it's got plenty of radioactivity in it, spent commercial nuclear fuel and a small quantity of mixed oxide fuel for about 40 years. Here's the problem with that. The word interim is based on the fact that there is a long-term facility for storage that it will be shipped to. The assumption is that it's Yucca Mountain. But as you've just heard, according to this administration, Yucca Mountain will never be used. So the basis for the moving forward of the so-called interim sites, both in West Texas and in New Mexico, is that they have some place to ship it to, and they do not. They are keeping the legal fiction of Yucca Mountain alive. And as for them moving it after about 40 years, it is widely believed that the waste will be allowed to stay there for the full 100 years that it is possible. And beyond that, who knows if we will have the will the money or the ability to take that waste and put it anywhere else. So it would be de facto a long-term storage facility. This proposed so-called interim site would be in Andrews County, Texas, which is less than a mile from the New Mexico border. A mixed metaphor in Utah, where the Bears Ears uranium mines are being sealed, but new mining is planned. The good news is that dozens of abandoned mine shafts have been sealed and toxic materials removed. But meanwhile, in the spring of 2020, a plan of operations was filed for a new uranium mine in the original Bears Ears National Monument on Deer Flat, in exactly the same area that is the subject of ongoing cleanup. 
The new mine calls for digging out a mine portal, constructing vent shafts, disturbing ground for a man camp, never a good idea, and widening roads before gating at least one of them to lock out the public from this area inside the original bear's ears. Meanwhile, indigenous communities are unanimous in their demand that uranium be left in the ground. Would that those in power would listen. And now, for your weekly dose of nuclear boneheadedness. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out a week. Hey, fun lovers, action seekers, and kids of all ages, want to earn a really cool Junior Ranger patch or badge? Then come on down to one of three Manhattan Project National Historical Parks. Yes, parks, that's what they call them, meaning Oak Ridge, Tennessee, home of the uranium enrichment plants, the liquid thermal diffusion plant, and the pilot plutonium production reactor. This is where the uranium-235 for the bomb dropped on Hiroshima came from. Then there's Hanford, Washington, and the beautiful Columbia River, where beginning in 1943, the site was used to produce plutonium for the bomb we dropped on Nagasaki. It's now considered the most contaminated location in the Western Hemisphere. Mm-mm-mm. And, of course, there's Los Alamos in New Mexico, the top-secret atomic weapons laboratory where the first atomic bombs were designed and built. Lots of fun for the whole family. So, heck, why not visit all three? All you have to do for your patch or badge, boys and girls, is go to the visitor center at any of these sites, pick up your Junior Ranger booklet, and tour the site. While you're there, be careful not to inhale any radioactive dust. Fill in the answers and either hand it in at the visitor center or mail it to the Manhattan Project National Historical Park, and ba-bam, you will get our really cool patch or badge. It's much more exciting than a boring forest or a cookout with marshmallows. You'll get to see nuclear waste, experience our history of ecological and human disaster propagated on the world, and receive some propaganda that will neutralize any critical thinking by the younger generation. And that's why Manhattan Project National Historical Parks put that word in quotes, and your sugar-coated history of planetary destruction, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. By the way, those ranger booklets come in English, Spanish, and Japanese. Moving right along. And there's a major article from the Orange County Register, ocregister.com, entitled... Are sand erosion and rising seas a concern for San Onofre's oceanfront nuclear waste storage? The short answer to that is yes. And for a longer answer, you can click on the link that we will have on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 529. Over to Japan where that country was in possession of a total of some 46.1 metric tons of plutonium at home and abroad as of the end of 2020, the most recent year for which we have information. This marks the first increase in three years of the amount of plutonium that Japan has. 
The plutonium is mixed with uranium to produce mixed oxide or MOX fuel for use at nuclear power plants. However, none of the nuclear plants in Japan used MOX fuel in 2020. In the wake of the triple nuclear meltdown at Fukushima Daiichi in 2011, only four reactors capable of using this MOX fuel have been reinstated, and there are no prospects of being able to activate other reactors or local body because of the resistance of local government bodies and residents giving the green light for such a move. So what is Japan doing with all that plutonium? And in a final slap in the face by the International Olympic Committee, they refused an international request for the Olympics to observe a moment of silence for A-bomb victims on Friday, August 6th, the anniversary of the first of two nuclear bombs being dropped on Japan in Hiroshima. This is supposedly in line with the IOC policy not to allow or facilitate political protests at the Olympics, which some athletes were challenging. In the UK, a coalition of deeply concerned Bristol Channel researchers and campaigners has undertaken a pre-dump radioactivity survey because EDF, which wants to dump radioactive material into Bristol Channel, refuses to do it. The coalition, representing interests from both Welsh and English communities along the Bristol Channel, appealed to the CEOs of the Marine Management Organization, the Natural Resources Wales, and the Westminster and Welsh government ministers who oversee those two agencies to postpone any dumping decision until the survey results are published. The coalition has also formally requested a public inquiry to discuss the radiological issues. That's right. Look before you leap. And this information came from Tim Deere Jones, a marine radioactivity research and consultancy for the coalition. August always brings such sad, horrible nuclear anniversaries. Hiroshima, Nagasaki, and both of those were preceded by the Trinity atomic blast in New Mexico, which harmed and continues to harm people living downwind from it. That was the start of what we came to call the Atomic Age, and there is no end in sight. Nuclear weapons, manufacturing, reactors, uranium mining, radioactive waste, accidents, permissible, put that in quotes, radiation exposures. The list of nuclear dangers and disasters is as endless as plutonium, which remains dangerously radioactive for 240,000 years. Yet despite the known risks, this industry perpetuates itself, making obscene amounts of money while threatening the future of the planet and of life itself. That's why Nuclear Hot Seat is here, to help you know and understand what's going on in the nuclear world and what you can do about it. We cover not only what the industry is doing, but how brave activists around the world are fighting back, and how any one of us, yes, even you, can take action to try and stop this atomic madness. At Nuclear Hot Seat, we're dedicated to giving you the nuclear stories you can't find in mainstream media, and we provide them with context and continuity so that you can understand the full ongoing picture. But in order to do our work, we need your help. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com there's a big red donate button. You can't miss it. Click on it and help us with a donation of any size.
That same red button is where you can set up a monthly donation. And even $5 a month, the same as a cup of coffee, will help us keep going. Please do what you can now. Please do what you can to support us now. And know that whatever you can do, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Here's this week's featured interview. Nuclear Hot Seat has been covering radiation issues surrounding the demolition of the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant in Piketon, Ohio, a manufacturing site for uranium-235. In 2019, radioactive neptunium, americium, and uranium-235 were found inside and on the grounds of Zahn's Corner Middle School. That's a story we covered for Nuclear Hot Seat number 413 of May 22, 2019. Central to that story, and more recent developments, was based on the work of Dr. Michael Ketterer, and he is our guest today. Dr. Ketterer holds a Ph.D. in analytical chemistry and has worked for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Enforcement. He has taught at multiple universities and since 2000 has been conducting studies of plutonium in the environment. He has published and lectured extensively on this subject and has analyzed samples from locations worldwide. Two of his current research interests are studying plutonium dioxide particles in soils near the former Rocky Flats facility in Colorado and fingerprinting off-site contaminants near the former Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant in southern Ohio. Dr. Ketterer is currently Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Biochemistry at Northern Arizona University. We spoke on Friday, August 6, 2021. Dr. Michael Ketterer, so great to have you with us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. My pleasure. Thank you, Libby. Let's start out with a little bit about you. What is your background and what has your training been? Well, my background is in chemistry. I have a bachelor's degree in chemistry and a PhD in analytical chemistry. And I've made my career in the area of environmental chemistry and specifically looking at tracing various uh, contaminant elements in the environment, such as lead and uranium and plutonium. And I've had experience working for US EPA in the Office of Enforcement, and then an academic career at three different institutions. And now I'm a professor emeritus of chemistry and biochemistry at Northern Arizona University. And I'm continuing to do work in looking at sources of radionuclides near U.S. nuclear sites, and uh, there's a variety of them that I've studied. How did you become involved with testing and monitoring the radiation levels from the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant? It's an interesting story. I have a long familial connection to Ohio. My parents lived there for several decades, and I actually lived in Ohio myself for five years, but in both cases, we were in the northeastern part of the state. And something that's rather different about Ohio is there's kind of a cultural and economic divide between the north of the state and those southern counties around where Portsmouth is. And, you know, as a result of that, I, I felt in 2018, as I was wrapping up my father's estate, that I had been familiar with Ohio for decades, but I really knew nothing about this Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant. And so in September 2018, I made a 
trip to Ohio and I decided to uh, drive down to the vicinity of the Portsmouth plant and I took some surreptitious samples and I had been reading about it and I kept thinking, you know, this place is a mess. And how is it that I've been coming to Ohio for decades and even lived there and I really didn't pay any attention to it? So I took some samples. I found most clearly that there was off-site contamination with radionuclides that were rather uniquely attributable to the Portsmouth plant. And then I took it from there. I started reaching out to community members and began collaborating with the community to collect samples and analyze them and try to interpret what we're seeing in the offsite environment. One thing I want you to make clear, who was it who asked you to do this work? Who hired you? Who paid you, if anyone? I was the one that initiated this and nobody really asked me to become involved. I did this uh, voluntarily and I have not received any salary from anyone to date on this particular project. So everything that I've been doing is what you might say pro bono or voluntary. Your findings have been central to this story starting in 2019. That's when the information surfaced that at the Zahn's Corner Middle School, there was radioactive neptunium, americium, and enriched uranium discovered inside the school or on the grounds. Were these the samples that you took surreptitiously and how did it play out as you made this information available to the public? Well, the samples that I analyzed from Zahn's Corner, there's two different sets. One was collected by a community member in uh, late 2018, early 2019. And there's another set that was collected by the U.S. Department of Energy through Savannah River National Laboratory. And I've analyzed both of those sets of samples in order to more or less look into the question about the enriched uranium. Are we able to find enriched uranium inside the school? I did not analyze any of DOE's air filter samples from the monitors. For example, there's this monitor A41A, which the neptunium was detected in from 2017 samplings, and then DOE released that information in early 2019. And then the community, their level of concern rose quite a bit after learning there's neptunium in the air outside of the school. But in my early studies going back to September 2018. No, I didn't go in the school. I was taking samples from uh, publicly accessible locations outside of the facility. And I have to make clear that all of the samples that I've analyzed are off plant site, off U.S. government property. Is it possible that neptunium or these other radionuclides could exist, shall we say, wild in the environment? Or can they be traced specifically back to the Portsmouth gaseous diffusion plant? Uranium occurs in nature, and that's to be expected. It's a natural component of soils and rocks and water and so forth. Neptunium, less so. There are some very, very narrow circumstances where neptunium has been found in nature, in particular, very small quantities, a few atoms here and there, you might say, in uranium ores. But other than that, you know, neptunium is pretty much not naturally occurring. 
Neptunium is to be expected from nuclear weapons testing during the 1950s and 60s. The U.S. and the former Soviet Union did these open air, open to the atmosphere tests called atmospheric tests. Those released a lot of radionuclides into the atmosphere, in particular the stratosphere. So then there's been this global deposition of those guys during the 50s and the 60s. So you can find neptunium anywhere in the environment at very, at very low concentrations as a result of this nuclear weapons testing. However, there really isn't any in the atmosphere of significance blowing around, so to speak. And so the finding of neptunium in an air monitor is a very, very unusual thing. What I've concentrated on in this work with respect to the Portsmouth facility is to try to distinguish the fingerprint or the signature of what we're seeing in the environment versus what can be expected from nature. So kind of like the default hypothesis, the null hypothesis is that uranium that we find in the environment is from nature. And the way that we test that hypothesis is to measure its isotope composition or isotope ratio. In particular, the ratio of 235 to 238 atoms. And that's just a simple numeric ratio of the number of atoms of each kind. That value is quite constant in nature. It only deviates by a couple parts per thousand. And if you see a higher abundance of uranium-235, we call that enriched uranium. And enriched uranium is something that I found basically from day one in the offsite environment. And there's lots of examples of finding it in soils, in the dusts in Zahn's Corner School, in the dusts in private individuals' residences offsite. It's present in the water draining the site. There's a creek called Little Beaver Creek, which goes into the Scioto River. We found enriched uranium in sediments of the Scioto River downstream of the facility. I found it in air monitors. I've been analyzing with a community member a, a series of biweekly air filters. Enriched uranium is present nearly all the time in those filters. So we can, so to speak, reject the null hypothesis and say, hey, this is not explainable as nature. Now, similarly, for the neptunium, there's something else that you can do. And you'd say that if you find neptunium, we could take the null hypothesis as being, well, it's from global fallout. It's from this nuclear weapons test legacy stuff from the 50s and 60s. And what you can do then to evaluate that is measure neptunium-237 relative to plutonium-239. Again, a ratio of a number of atoms. And this is the work that I do in the laboratory with what's called mass spectrometry. It's basically counting numbers of atoms. Anyway, the relationship in this global fallout between neptunium-237 and plutonium-239 is relatively constant. The null hypothesis is upheld if you find a neptunium-237, plutonium-239 ratio of about 0.48. That's been established by DOE's own studies. Pacific Northwest Laboratories published that in 1999. So that would be considered the normal ratio? That would be considered the normal ratio, exactly. So the default or null hypothesis or the normal ratio 
of Neptunium-237, Plutonium-239 should be about 0.48. In contrast, what we're seeing at Portsmouth is much different. There's a lot more Neptunium than could possibly be accounted for by global fallout. So without question, there's Neptunium present in various offsite locations that comes from Portsmouth. I think most notably, we saw it in the sediments of, it's called Little Beaver Creek. It's a small creek that's draining a good part of the U.S. government reservation. And it's known that those sediments are contaminated. You know, we found the same thing, essentially, that Department of Energy has reported in their site evaluation reports. When you came out with this information, what was the response in the community and what was the response of DOE? It was uh, April 27th, 2019 that this information was first publicized. So Pike County General Health District had arranged a public meeting to discuss the Neptunium-237 in the atmosphere. And uh, we organized kind of like a presentation. I was out of state and sent them a PowerPoint. And then I presented via audio via telephone, I guess in the pre-Zoom days, that's how we did it. But I made a public presentation and released a report, which showed a lot of this offsite contamination with the enriched uranium, Neptunium, et cetera, in various places. And there was a kind of two different reactions, more or less outrage from the community just sort of a reaction of lying to us and we don't believe anything you have to say, uh, that sort of thing. Meaning they were saying that to the DOE. Correct. And from the Department of Energy, there were two DOE representatives at the meeting, Greg Simonton and Jeremy Davis. And then there was a floor BWXT representative, J.D. Dowell at the meeting. My recollection is that Davis and Dowell made basically false statements about where the Neptunium was from. What did they say? I'd have to go back and look at the Mm. transcript, but it's to the effect that Neptunium can be expected to be in global fallout. If it's in the air monitors, it's coming from soil that was previously contaminated with atmospheric testing debris from the 50s. And, you know, it was statements to that effect. In the wake of this revelation, what, if anything, was done to clean up the problem or attempt to clean up the problem? To my knowledge, there hasn't really been any attempt to clean up the problem. In response to some of these findings with the enriched uranium in the Zahn's Corner School, the local school district made the decision to close the school. And to my knowledge, it's more or less there in undisturbed fashion. I don't think that there's been any cleanup done. To my knowledge also, the Department of Energy is quite occupied with cleaning up. They have a term for it that's abbreviated D&D, decommissioning and something. Anyway, they're occupied with the site itself, not the off-site environment. And so there's nothing really being done offsite. There have just recently been new findings that have been central to the questions and concerns of local residents. And you are again involved in this. Tell us about the more recent findings. 
there's two sets of more recent findings that I've come out with. Uh, one of them is from DOE's own data. In uh, April 2021, I sent a report to Matt Brewster. He's the commissioner of the Pike County General Health District. And I've used DOE's data that are obtainable by anyone through their system called Pegasus. So there's a government website. I went to the Pegasus website and I started looking at Neptunium in water. And one of the findings was that the DOE data were showing that on the plant site in the vicinity of a building, former building called the X701, so it's sort of on the east edge of the site, there's a plume of Neptunium contamination in the groundwater. And it also appears to be discharging into Little Beaver Creek. And then from there, it flows to the west towards the Scioto River. This contaminated area is upstream of where we had found the Neptunium in the sediments. So I wrote a memo to notify the general health district so they can inform the public that there's this groundwater contamination issue. And I also said that it seems like the state of Ohio, Ohio EPA, should set an enforceable standard for how much Neptunium-237. It's a hazardous substance under Superfund. It's a radionuclide. How much is allowable in water? And I'll note that near Rocky Flats in Colorado, DOE has stipulated to a standard of 0.15 picocuries per liter for plutonium and americium. So I made the suggestion in this report to Matt Brewster, well, Ohio EPA needs to put in a standard. Why not a similar one here for Neptunium? What's the issue? You know, do you have different standards for different states or, uh, you know, are the people of Ohio somehow not good enough for, for environmental protection? So I made that point. And finally, to cap that part of the story, I had been given some documents that showed that the DOE and its predecessors, going back to Goodyear Atomic in 1976 and 1977, they knew that this particular area, the X701 area, was contaminated with Neptunium. And so essentially, the DOE has known about this problem for 45 years. And they let it go? They have not been forthcoming to the public, for sure, about what's going on. And this is, you know, this is a bipartisan thing. Every administration, Carter would have been president at that time, or maybe the end of the Ford era. Every administration going back to Eisenhower has kind of taken the same posture on this particular facility. So I pointed all that out and I had obtained a copy of the actual original Goodyear atomic correspondence from 1976 to 1977 that shows that Goodyear Atomic, who was DOE's contractor to run the plant at that time, Goodyear Atomic knew all about this Neptunium contamination in this area in typewriter type text on paper. The old fashioned way. So you said that this was part of one report that you submitted. What was the response of the Ohio officials that you sent this to? I haven't really heard anything from them. Effectively, no response. And I brought this Neptunium issue to the attention of Ohio EPA also, who should have statutory authority for setting environmental standards off-site. 
You know, I'd say that there's been very little response. However, the DOE has not disputed. They've seen, of course, my calling them out on the Neptunium plume in the groundwater. They've not disputed it. I think that if I was saying something that was wrong in their eyes, they would have disputed it immediately. So that, that has not happened. You mentioned that you had made a second set of discoveries or a second report. What was in that second set of information? I've been working the last two years with a community member. She wishes to keep a low profile, but this community member has been operating a high volume air monitor, similar to what DOE uses for their monitoring on her own residential property, as well as two townships, Scioto Township and Seal Township. So these are communities right in the periphery of the facility. And these monitors collect aerosols that are in the air and get them onto a piece of filter paper. And then I cut out sections and analyze sections of those. So in May of this year, I released some reports that showed essentially a time series of what's found in the air. And basically there's enriched uranium found in the air all the time at all monitors with the exception of what I'll call the COVID hiatus. Explain to us the COVID hiatus. It appears that around the middle to end of March of 2020, right when the whole world was really, really getting concerned about the pandemic, the Department of Energy shut down, essentially halted or mothballed the, the cleanup operations at Portsmouth then reinitiated in July of 2021. And I found some documents from Ohio EPA and correspondence with Ohio EPA and DOE that confirms that time frame pretty well. Well, what we see in the air monitors is more or less the enriched uranium emissions disappear and there's a return to naturally occurring uranium in the atmosphere during those COVID months. So I call that the COVID hiatus. There's a hiatus of air emissions from the D&D work. And then in late July 2020, then the operations commenced again, and that's when the enriched uranium returns in the air. And so we've seen this in what we now have is about a two-year sequence of air filters. There's an old saying that correlation is not causation. And it's compelling to see the correlation that you have come up with between the timing of the demolition shutdown, the COVID hiatus, and the levels in the environment. Are you prepared to say that those are definitely linked with each other? Yes, for sure, because this goes well beyond correlation or just an anecdotal association. This is, this is causation. We're looking at either the presence or absence of enriched uranium, which is identifiable by this isotope ratio, 235 and 238, which is quantitatively measurable. And there really isn't any other explanation. I would like, you know, if the Department of Energy is going to say, well, this isn't from us, well, give us, please, a alternative explanation that makes any sense. And that has not been forthcoming as yet. They have not said anything like that. I think now the dialogue is shifting a little bit more towards 
yes, we'll admit that there's offsite contamination of this and that nature. However, it's not at levels that are hurting anybody. That's the one that makes me nuts because nobody understands about radiation. And the first thing that anyone says is either there's no radiation or if there is some, there's no damage. There's no harm to you. Don't worry about it. There, there, Missy, don't worry your pretty little head about it. I'm not specifically an expert in the health effects of radiation or dose or what are the anticipated risks of exposure to various uh, levels of radionuclides. However, I would point out that just sort of in a general type of manner, this is sort of a textbook statement. I've taught general chemistry umpteen times. In any general chemistry book, there's a chapter on nuclear chemistry, and it says, if this is an alpha-emitting radioisotope, the way that that can hurt you is by ingesting it. So inhaling it or ingesting it, drinking it or eating it is the way that these radionuclides harm you. So there's definitely a pathway for that exposure to occur. How much? That's not something that I can clarify about. But I'll add one more thing, if I may. Of course. There's more to the story than these are the radioisotopes and this is how they decay and this is how that radioactive decay can hurt you. The other thing we really should consider is that these elements, these chemical elements are also chemical toxins. Uranium is chemically toxic, which is something independent of its properties as a radionuclide. So uranium chemically has been shown to bind to DNA and to cause strand breaks in DNA. In other words, it will have mutagenic effects. I'm not doing research in that area and am not really the right expert to talk about those papers, but I know of their existence. And, you know, I can read them peripherally and say, it looks like this is how DNA is going to be affected by uranium. So these additional elements like technetium, which we haven't talked about really, neptunium, plutonium, those are all, they're all chemical elements and they're going to have the potential to act as chemical toxins. There's some concern that technetium, and there's abundant technetium-99 in the proximity of Portsmouth, technetium may interact with the human thyroid. There's not a lot of, there's not a thick file on the literature on these things. With this new revelation of the COVID hiatus, as you call it, has DOE resumed the demolition or the decontamination, attempted decontamination of the site? And how has the community been responding to this set of information? Well, I haven't really heard any feedback from an official representative of the community, such as the health district, and I've not heard any feedback from the DOE either about any of this. However, it looks like the decommissioning of the plant, the teardown, is going at full speed. They are taking down, at present, it's my understanding, the so-called X-326 building, which is one of the three gaseous diffusion plant buildings. These are enormous buildings occupying acres and acres and acres. And in May of 2021, a community member shot a little roadside video showing the open air demolition of this X-326 building 
with a wind event where workers were attempting to cover what they were doing with the tarp. And the tarp was just flapping around like a kite in the wind. It's clear that the DOE wants to push ahead with open air demolition. And that has not changed one bit since Jennifer Granholm became Secretary of Energy. How far away have the radionuclides been measured? That's a good question. The DOE has a set of air monitors, and they have one that's 14 miles southwest of the plant at a small community called Otway, O-T-W-A-Y, I believe. And there's data on this Pegasus. I believe that's P-E-G-A-S-I-S. There's data on this Pegasus for air monitoring results. And one of the things I also did was I looked at technetium-99 in the air. And in 2015 and 2016, there's an astounding set of results. And basically at this Otway, you see the same concentrations of technetium-99 as you do right next to the plant. And what that's saying is that there's stuff being emitted probably as a gas. And so it's diffusing throughout this whole lower Scioto Valley and it's widespread. How far does it go? I don't know, but it's certainly making it 14 miles southwest of the plant. The technetium-99 is another contaminant that's almost essentially 100% synthetic. It could be associated with nuclear weapons testing fallout, but in this case, there's a causal relationship between technetium-99 and the facility itself. So the Tech-99 is from the Portsmouth plant. It is not from some other conjectured source. And so to answer your overall question, I think that these radionuclides are widespread. The truth is we really don't know because I think until I came along, there was not a lot of off-site data. The, the DOE published some in their annual site env environmental reports, ACER reports, but it's kind of presented in a way to, you know, not really hit the nail on the head about what's going on. This is clearly an ongoing story that's not going to go away. What is your awareness of the media's coverage of it? And has that been consistent or do they pop up and then go away and wait for your next report? It comes in ebbs and flows. It sort of pops up and goes away. There was certainly a lot of attention focused on Portsmouth in May of 2019 after the school district made the decision to close the plant. In fact, I found newspaper articles all over the world about that event. I found one in uh, Spanish from Argentina. I found one in Portuguese from Portugal. I found one in German from Germany, South Africa, Poland, Canada, the US, uh, all over. And then that coverage kind of waned and there has not been a lot of attention focused on it since then. A bit more recently, investigative reporter Dwayne Pullman of Cincinnati's Channel 12 has broadcast a series of investigative stories, which I've been interviewed for. But there has not been continuous, really intense media scrutiny of things happening there. Moving forward, what is your intention in terms of ongoing involvement in this story? 
I am committed to continuing to assist uh, community members in an informal pro bono way. I think a lot more is needed. There is finally a little bit of attention from Washington, Ohio Representative Tim Ryan, who's a Democrat from uh, one of the Northeastern Ohio districts, has paid some attention to the facility and has, on the record, asked Secretary of Energy Granholm to pay some attention to it as well. There's been a little bit of that happening. However, you know, the community needs a lot more. I, I think what the community really needs is the ability to produce their own information independent of the Department of Energy. I think at this particular site, with the nature of these contaminants, they're not under control in the site, you know? There's Neptunium and enriched uranium offsite and it's appearing in the air. It's not under control. The community needs perpetual environmental monitoring. We have to kind of characterize what's there and what's coming out on an ongoing basis to begin to understand it. I think that needs to be under community control. The DOE initiated what they called an independent third party study in 2019, which has been underway. And essentially the intent of that study is to demonstrate that there's no significant radiological risk from the stuff that's out there in the environment. You know, that's not really what the community needs. And I don't think that the community has a lot of faith or confidence in that. I think the community needs to sort of organize its own effort, maybe through the county health district, you know, have a couple of employees and perhaps a testing laboratory. The types of testing I do at Northern Arizona University is something that could easily be set up in a community-based laboratory. They need to be able to produce and interpret their own information and act on it with entities like Ohio EPA, rather than, you know, asking DOE to tell them what's happening. I think community control of environmental monitoring and oversight is essential, and i really welcome the opportunity to work with them, to assist them with getting that going. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to add at this point? There is a little bit of an opportunity for DOE to change their culture a bit here with new leadership coming in in the Office of Science. I think that there's the opportunity to change how things are done a little bit. So these next couple months, these next few months are going to be critical as those new people come in and there's new leadership in the Office of Science. I think that there's the opportunity that people like me, as well as the community, can confront DOE and say, hey, look, this is what you've been saying for 45 years, and this is how it really is. You know, there's a disconnect here. Let's talk about what's really true. I see the fulcrum moving a little bit with respect to DOE and this particular site. But then on the other hand, you know, they are going as fast as they possibly can to, to tear down that X326 building. And they really do not want to address the fact that this open air demolition is releasing all of this contaminated dust into the atmosphere. That's probably the most serious concern that's happening right now in real time. And, uh, they need to be confronted about that. You know, I've written some emails along those lines, and I wrote 
who knows if they read it, but I wrote Secretary Granholm. And I said, Jennifer, I called her Jennifer, you know, Jennifer, how the F would you like it if this contaminated dust was wafting in the air outside of your lake house in Michigan? How would you like it? You know, this is what the community gets to live with due to your actions. You know, the, the new leadership of DOE needs to understand that they are accountable for all of this stuff that's being done right now on the ground with their contractors. And they can't hide behind their $200,000 salaries and their genteel manners and clothes and coming in to work with their Starbucks in hand. They can't hide behind that. What they have going on in Portsmouth is no freaking chocolate factory. They need to recognize that and they need to bring truth and support to the community. One final thought. Would you be willing to live in that community? That question kind of puts me on the spot. I would say if I had a choice, the answer would be no. And I'll give you a similar example. In 2013, I moved from Flagstaff to the Denver, Colorado area. And my wife and I made the deliberate decision not to look for a place to live in the immediate proximity of the Rocky Flats plant, because I knew about the plutonium contamination in the offsite soils there and the ongoing transport of plutonium contaminated dust. I think that I would have similar concerns at Portsmouth. And, you know, if I had a choice, I would not choose to live there. Dr. Michael Ketterer, you have done brilliant and crucial work on your own motivation on behalf of the people in Piketon, Ohio, and in the surrounding area to the Portsmouth Gaseous Diffusion Plant. You're continuing to do so, which is so important. And we look forward to talking with you in the future about any new breakthroughs and new information that you find. For now, thank you for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you for interviewing me for Nuclear Hot Seat. Dr. Michael Ketterer. We will have a link up to some of his work on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 529. After Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the next set of atomic atrocities that were committed by the United States were against the people of the Marshall Islands where between 1946 and 1958, the U.S. exploded 67 nuclear bombs, not in war, but as tests. The full story of the Mengele-like way that we behave towards the Marshallese people is as ugly a chapter of American history as exists, one that the Marshallese are still suffering from. There is a website, atomicatolls.org, and it's a place where you can go to read the history testimonials by survivors and descendants, and learn how before the bikini was a bathing suit, it was an island atoll that we destroyed with 23 separate bombings. It's an important website, telling an important story, and I encourage you to take a look. And hats off and kudos to two of my favorite activists, Kevin Hester and Guy McPherson, who continue to produce their podcast, Nature Bats Last. The show deals with all aspects of the ever-unfolding climate catastrophe, but this particular episode deals with nukes and includes the fabulous Mimi Gurman, who lives in Oregon and joined them. Please 
take a look. They've got it up on YouTube, and we will link to it on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 529. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, August 10, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.com, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, NevadaAppeal.com, Power-ENG.com, GrandCanyonTrust.org, PostRegister.com, OCRegister.com, Mainichi.jp, BaselPeaceOffice.com, and the totally captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Thanks to all of you for listening, with a big shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world. Now, if you'd like to make certain you never miss a single episode of this show, you can get it delivered via email once a week. We don't bug you. It's just the one, which will have the link and a short outline of some of the material that's in that episode. It's easy to do. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow opt-in box, put in your first name and email address. We'll send it out to you. And if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email with that information to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Yes, it gets read, and yes, it gets considered seriously. And a reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to help us out. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com and look for the big red button. Anything you can do will help and we really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that minimizing the impact of nuclear radiation on our lives and health might make some people feel safe, But the lies don't change scientific facts. They just keep you trapped within the danger of your own ignorance. There you go. You've just had your nuclear wake-up call. So please, whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.